We're in week two of our series on abiding. Abiding meaning to draw close to Jesus, to stay close to Jesus, marinate in his presence, to draw near, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Before we go into our time this morning, I want to start off by commenting and recommending and mentioning uh, the book The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Some of you guys have read that book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I don't agree with 100% of the book or his positions as a pastor, but it was a great resource. And especially in our introduction, you're going to hear me mention a bunch of statistics which are from that book. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. If you ask the vast majority of people, today when you're at the beach and you haven't seen Frank in a while, and you say, hey, Frank, how are you doing, Frank? How are you doing? By and large, you're going to get the same answer, and the answer is typically busy. Good, but busy. Matter of fact, probably that's the answer you give to the vast majority of people who ask you how you're doing. I'm doing really well. I'm just, man, we're really busy. It's the answer that almost everybody gives. Everybody's busy, by the way. It doesn't matter how old you are, you're busy. It doesn't matter what race you are, you're busy. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a male or a female, you're busy. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you're in the middle, you're busy. Everyone is busy. And you know what? Most people will tell you they're busier than they've ever been. Can't really put their finger on why, but they're busier than they've ever been. They're busy with work. They're busy with school. They're busy with sports. Because now it used to be that soccer was in the fall. Now soccer is 14 months a year. Right? They're busy with dance. They're busy with gymnastics. They're busy with clubs. They're busy with the boat because they feel guilty if they don't use it at least once a week. They're busy with the camper they bought because they have to go camping a few times this summer. Otherwise, it feels like a waste. They're busy having fun. They're frankly busy with everything. We're busy until the summer is over, but then we realize we're just as busy, if not busier, in the off-season. You're busy during the holiday season. You're busy gearing up for the holiday season, right? Starting your Christmas shopping now. We joked about it last year, but scheduling your Christmas photos in September because it's all booked up. We're busy. But don't worry, the spring is coming, and then it's recital season, which for some reason makes no sense to me, but we spend money all year long and then spend $35 a person to watch our kids perform for 37 seconds. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody's busy. The problem is this. Being busy doesn't make you a better person. Does everybody agree with that? Being busy doesn't make you better. Actually, being busy makes you hurried, and being hurried does more harm than good. Let me read this quote. I want you to think if you can relate to this. All of my worst moments as a father, as a husband, a pastor, even as a human being are when I am in a hurry. Late for an appointment, behind on a to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day. Is that true? I guarantee you it's true. Your kids were late this morning, you couldn't get out of the house on time. 
I'm sure you weren't like this. Now, sweetie, we're a little late, but we're just gonna mosey on in, it's fine. I'm sure that's not what it was like. Instead, you were fighting the urge to throw a shoe at them, right? Raising your voice, driving to church, thinking, now my spirit is all in a disarray because of my little children, because we were rushed, we were late, we were busy. See, we're busy, we're hurried, and Dallas Willard, who was a, an author who's passed away now, he's gone to be with the Lord, he wrote a lot of books on spiritual disciplines, and that means like, you know, spending time with the Lord and how to do that, among other things. And this is what Dallas Willard said, quote, he used to say this all the time, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry. Now, let me ask you this. If I had quizzed you before and I said, when you came in, I said, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to write it down. And I said, what do you think is the greatest enemy of Christianity in America? I guarantee you nobody would have written down hurry. You would have written down the progressive agenda, postmodernity, hedonism, and you would have, you know, Democrats. Republicans, and you would have written down all of these different things, these different perspectives, as the great enemy of Christianity in America. It's CNN. Right? Maybe. But listen to this quote from a professor whose name I can't pronounce. Zigarelli. Professor Zigarelli from Zigarelli University. He says, it may be the case that, and track this, one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads them to, two, God becoming marginalized in their lives, which, three, leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which, four, leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about life, which, five, leads to even more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. Hurry and busyness is a problem. Actually, I think you could say it's a cancer in our lives, because it does multiply, doesn't it? Just like cancer. Professor Kenneth Birding, some of you, uh, I know some of the DGs led his, read his little book on walking in the spirit last year. K Professor Birding pointed out in his book that we walk in the spirit. We don't run in the spirit. Walking is the great metaphor that the New Testament uses to describe the Christian life by and large. It's not the only one. You see, the kingdom of God is contained, contained within the kingdom of God are these core things like love and joy and peace. Does hurry make you more loving? When you're hurried, are you more likely to love someone well? You can answer. Thanks, Josh. No. When you're hurried, do you feel more filled with joy? Do you? Thank you, Gina. And of course, when you're hurried, do you feel any semblance of peace? 
now. We feel little love, we have no time for joy, and frankly, we are not at peace when we're hurried. Hurry, being hurried, being busy, being distracted doesn't make us any of those things. On the contrary, being hurried makes us the opposite because what does Paul say? Love is patient. I have no time for patience when I'm hurried. It's actually the thing that I don't have time for. You see, if love and joy and peace are at the heart of what Jesus is trying to form within us, then we have to acknowledge that being hurried and busy and distracted is, quite honestly, a direct attack against these things. And we have a problem. Because how am I doing? I'm busy. And I'm busier than I've ever been. So the question is this. How did we get here? How did we get here? How on earth did we get this busy? You know, I think it was in the 3rd century BC, if I remember correctly, that the sundial was invented. And if you read contemporary writings from philosophers, everybody was up in arms and furious because now there was this thing telling me what to do. See, back then, people still had to stick it to the maniosis. Nobody tells me what to do, right? And they were really upset about it. Fast forward to the year 1370, the first mechanical clock tower was assembled. And guess where it was? You could probably guess based upon the culture. Germany, right? And ever since that point, I want you to realize this. Before that point in time, you know when bedtime was? When it got dark. And you know when you woke up in the morning? When it got light. But now numbers were assigned to times during the day instead of having the sun control the times of the day. Now you say, well, that bill, that's progress. You're being silly. I'm not being silly because you remember what it says in Genesis chapter one, it says God created the greater light and the lesser light. And do you remember why he created them to govern days, seasons, and times until we invented the clock. And now, frankly, God, we don't need your help anymore. Now I want you to realize this. God had rhythms of life naturally embedded in creation. Certain seasons where you'd sleep longer, certain seasons where you'd sleep less. Certain days when you would have more time, certain days when God knew in your body you needed more time to decompress. But with the clock, numbers determined when you started work, when you went to bed, when you had lunch, etc. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Germany or Austria. Actually, I've never been to Germany yet, going soon. I have been to Austria. And when you see, you know, you go walk around Wildwood and it has like the walking, you know, like the walk, don't walk. What does it look like? It's like don't walk is like, beep, 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 you know, sky. And then walking is just the sky walking. In Austria, the don't walk sign is like this. And the walking sign is like, it's time to walk. It's fitting since the Germanic culture invented the clock. All right, guys. I was really hoping you'd laugh more at that. 
So then, fast forward, in 1879, now we have 500 years later, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, making it much easier to stay up past sunset. Do you know, when you read from authors, guess how long the average person slept a night prior to 1879? 11 hours a night. The average person slept 11 hours a night and now, in America, the average person sleeps seven hours a night. So actually, we have four more hours in a day to get stuff done. Now, never mind the fact that they used to have to literally make everything from scratch, and somehow they got all their stuff done. But now we have four more hours, and we can buy our groceries or call, you know, DoorDash, and somehow we're busier than we've ever been. And so the question is, busy with what? Busy with what? Fast forward to 2007, probably the biggest, most momentous day on the planet for changing the world with the, since Gutenberg invented the printing press. Anybody know what happened in 2007? iPhone was released. The iPhone was released. Some fast facts. The average iPhone user, because by the way, they do collect data from you. The average iPhone user, that's from your great-grandma who never touches it or touches it one time a day when she accidentally FaceTimes you, to the teenager. The average iPhone user touches his phone 2,617 times a day. And you're going to say, that's not true. You watch, because this is what happens. Your phone's on your desk. You check the time. And then what happens is 30 seconds later, you see your phone go dim, and it, makes, it distracts you for a second. And you know what you do? You think, did I just get a text message? And you touch your screen. That's what you do it all day long. Now you'll notice it. I hope you notice it. The average American is on their phone 2.5 hours a day. And you say, man, that's a lot. Millennials, so that's like, I guess it's, I'm technically like the beginning of millennials. So like 40 years old down, they touch their phones on average 5,000 times a day. 5,000 times a day. And they average five plus hours of screen time a day. Now that's just your phone, by the way. That doesn't count how many hours you're on your laptop for work. It doesn't count how much time you spend watching TV. It doesn't count how much time you spend on Xbox. It doesn't count how much time you are on your iPad. It doesn't count how much time you're on your Kindle Fire. It doesn't count how much time you watch Netflix. So that's 2.5 to 5 hours a day on your phone, not counting every other device in your home. You know, everyone thought technology would make us more efficient, and it has, but somehow we are busier than we've ever been. We work longer hours. We take less time off. We spend less quality time with family and friends. Maybe technology actually hasn't helped too much. Now, I want you to imagine life before this. Some of us can remember it. By the way, I'm 40. I'll be 41 at the end of the month. We are the last generation that remembers what it's like to be bored, if you think about it. You know, if I wanted to watch that weird Mario cartoon that came out for like a year, I had to get up at like 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday 
That was it. It was just on 22 minutes. It was done. Right? We are the last generation to actually remember boredom. We remember standing in line, and you just got to stand there. And you just hope people don't talk to you. Right? We're the last generation to remember that. Now, I want you to realize we used to have hundreds, if not thousands, of dead spots in our day. We used to have hundreds, if not thousands, of incremental times to pray, to reflect, to ponder. And because of the smartphone, guess what? You lost all of it. Because now when you're standing in line, you know what you do? Check your phone. We used to chat with people in line while waiting for our turn to pay. We used to watch our kids and enjoy them instead of worrying about whether or not we can take a picture of what's going on so that our friends can enjoy it on Instagram. We used to sit around the campfire talking before bed instead of staring at a screen. I don't know if we're better. See, if the practical examples and things I've been mentioning so far have not stirred you, I want you to think about what scriptures teach. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says a farmer came out, and he's throwing his seed, and it lands on four different grounds, so to say. It lands on the driveway or the, the, the path. It lands among the rocks. It lands among the thorns, and then it lands on fertile soil. And he says, the, when it landed on the, the drive, the, the path, the birds of the air came, they snatched it away. When it landed on the rocks, it actually did grow. We know that because like, somehow you'll still have grass grow on your patio, right? Not in your lawn, but on your patio it will grow. And, and what happens is then it gets really hot and it just fries. And Jesus said, that happened in the second soil. The third soil, it landed among weeds. And, and the weeds came and they grew up and the thorns, they choked it out. So it never actually grew enough to have fruit. But then the fourth seed landed on good fertile soil. And it yielded a great, you know, produce of 30, 60, 100 fold. And then a few verses later, Jesus explains this to his disciples. He says this. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seed that falls on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message, receive it with joy, but since they don't have depth or deep roots, they believe for a while and then they fall away when they face temptation. The seed that falls among the thorns represents those who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by cares, riches, and pleasures of this life, and so it never grows into maturity. And the seed that fell on the good soil and represents good, honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest from the NLT, that version. See, the third soil, the soil that gets choked out, the soil that never reaches maturity, it hears the word, it receives the word, it even has root from the word, but it never grows up. It's like a kid who never lives at, moves out of his mom's basement, all right? The spiritual version of that. Why? What chokes it out? Persecution? No, no cares, worries, 
riches, pleasure, in a word, distractions. Busyness, hurry. What chokes it out? Life. Life. So what's the solution? Luke 10, this is what we read, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now let's get some context. Who are Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha, or we also see them in, in John chapter 11, the resurrection and the life. They're the sisters of Lazarus. Um, who was raised from the dead, he stinketh. And so here we have Mary and Martha, they're friends with Jesus. Jesus has been to their house many times. So that's who Mary and Martha are, right? Martha's probably the big sister. Most scholars think it was Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, right? And that's who these women are. And why was Martha serving? Like, well, why was she so busy? Well, she's busy because Jesus is there, right? And Jesus didn't travel alone. It's not like he was an easy guest where he'd show up and you'd just throw another shrimp on the barbie. You know, Jesus traveled with a crew of people, right? He had his disciples. He had his, it's the Holy Ghost. He had his disciples. Jesus had, you know, his mom. There was like, I don't know, seven or eight Marys who traveled with him, right? And so Jesus had this group of people and, and so what is she doing? She's serving Jesus. She's busy serving Jesus. She's not like busy playing Pokemon, right? She's not trying to catch them all. She's busy serving Jesus. Now, culturally, what was Mary's expectation? Or Martha's expectation? To serve Jesus. Martha was the host. Mary and Martha are the host family. It's their responsibility to put all of the guests ahead of them. Let me tell you a story. Um, you know, there's a book that came out a couple of decades ago, and it was about how the closest modern culture to ancient Judaism is Japanese. And Gina and I were in Japan for, I don't know, it was about a month, and we stayed over in, in one Japanese family's home, and we were in rural Japan. So it wasn't like Tokyo. It was rural Japan. And so they, it, they drew a bath. And everybody, it was like you'd take a bath, and then the next person took a bath, next person took a bath. And since I was the guest, they were like, we want you to take a bath first. And then after you take a bath, Gina can take a bath. And then after Gina can take a bath, then the dad was going to take a bath so I don't really remember what I did. I think I pretended to bathe. But the point is that in this kind of a culture, the person you're hosting is really like, like the king and the queen are visiting. And so Mary and Martha have cultural expectation 
to serve Jesus well. And here's Martha, and she's prepping all of these things, and she's getting all this stuff ready. And Mary, what's she doing? Nothing. Like a loafer. Mary the communist. That's what they call her, just sitting around, right? Mary's over here. She's just sitting on the floor. Martha's all upset. She's got a Protestant work ethic, right? She's working really hard. Mary's sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach and share. Now, what is Martha missing out on while she is busy? She's missing out on Jesus. Now, she's serving Jesus. But she's not enjoying Jesus. And so because she chose this portion, what happens? What does she get for it? Well, Mary gets quality time with Jesus. She gets to learn from Jesus. She gets to sit at his feet. She gets to enjoy his presence. She gets to enjoy his smile and his kindness. But what does Martha get? She gets anxiety. She gets trouble. She gets a growing bitterness and a growing resent towards her sister. Let's get some big observations here from this story. In Martha's mind, the big thing of the day was Jesus visiting and she had to be the hostess. Hear me, people. The big and important thing, fill in the blank, it's actually not that important. You know, when we first church planted, I would get so worked up if something didn't work out right, sound didn't work, my sermon wasn't very bueno. And then I realized, no one's going to remember this in two weeks. And if no one's going to remember this in two weeks, certainly no one will remember in a hundred years or in all eternity. Your wedding day was probably so busy, you don't even remember what food you served. You didn't get a chance to eat your cake. Sometimes the big thing isn't actually as big as we think that it is. That's observation number one. It's called perspective. Observation number two, distractions are often rooted in societal, familial, or personal expectations. Holiday prep. Well, we got to send out Christmas cards. Why? Does it add value to your life or does it just create a bunch of pressure in your heart that now you're yelling at your kids to send out cards? If it doesn't add value, don't do it. If it's not making you more peace-filled, more joy-filled during a season when you should be focusing on those things, it's a distraction, not a benefit. I got to make sure my kids are in sports six days a week. No, you don't. Why? Well, they'll be a weirdo. Whatever. So they're a weirdo. They'll probably be the next billionaire. I have to learn this skill. I have to keep my lawn meticulous. I got to make sure that I bring out the dirt bike. The sun is out. I feel obligated to go to the beach. All of these things are familial, societal, and, fam and personal expectations that actually wind up causing you to do something you don't necessarily want to do, but you're afraid of what will happen if you don't do it. Am I right? You, you can say it. Am I right? You know I'm right. And you're just like, I'm going to... You're walking out of here like, I'm not going to the beach. I don't want to. That's number two. Number three, sometimes what you say you're doing for Jesus is actually more about you than about Jesus. So here's Martha, and she's like, 
I got to get this ready for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better portion. Being with me is more important than serving me. There's an Andrew Peterson song from 2003 called Just As I Am. Andrew Peterson wrote the song, Is He Worthy? If you remember that song. Andrew Peterson has this song, and I don't remember the lyrics. And I had it like in my brain of what the lyrics were, and then I looked them up, and I was like, I like my lyrics better. <laughs> but it's something along the lines of, when he's here for the harvest, he's glad for the fruit, but actually it's me that he wants. He wants you. He's not here to get your fruit. He's here for you. The fruit is, the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, blah, all those things you can't have if you're busy and distracted and hurried. Mary thought she was doing, or Martha thought all of this was for Jesus and his friends. And so surely as she's in the kitchen upset, she's thinking this, while I'm busy serving Jesus, Mary's just sitting there doing nothing. But Mary chose the better portion. Sitting with Jesus was better than serving Jesus. Sitting with Jesus was better than being the greatest hostess of all times. This event is written in the New Testament for all eternity. Sitting with Jesus is better than being the hostess of an event that will be recorded for all to read for the rest of time. Sitting with Jesus is more important than if the disciples are applauding Martha her for her fantastic fake cakes. Went down in history. Sitting with Jesus is more important than ensuring there was adequate wine, adequate bread, adequate mutton, lettuce, and tomatoes. Being with Jesus is better than doing things for Jesus. How much more so is being with Jesus better than doing things for your kids? If being with Jesus is better than serving Jesus, how much more is being with Jesus, how much more important is being with Jesus than making sure you do things for your kids or making sure you do things for your boss or making sure that you do things for your neighbors because their lawn looks better than yours and you want to make sure your lawn looks really good too and you don't have time to read the Bible because you got to edge your lawn. That's what we do. But being with Jesus is better. It's better. See, the consequences of these things isn't, well, now I'm so busy. The consequences is that you miss out on Jesus. And you squander time you can never get back. You can never get it back. You can always mow your lawn another day. But you can't get that time back. See, Jesus was busy too, but he wasn't distracted. Jesus was busy too, but he was never hurried. Jesus was always calm, always still, always where he needed to be. Jesus knew that life will be busy, but the solution is not greater productivity. The solution is to be still, which is the heart of abiding. Drawing near to God in quiet and stillness. Pushing against the demands of society, the demands of the world, and in your day-to-day, -day, choosing the greater portion, because at the end of the day, your Christmas cards don't matter. They're just nice. It's not about prioritizing your schedule, but scheduling your priorities. The solution to a hurried, distracted, worried life is quiet. Consider Jesus. 
When Jesus went to the wilderness after his baptism, he would go into the desert. He would travel to deserted places. He often sought solitude. It said he would go to the lonely place, the quiet place. Did you know all of these words in the original language are the same word? And it can be translated as the quiet place, not the creepy movie, the quiet place. The quiet place is where Jesus began his ministry after his baptism. The quiet place is where Jesus would go after a long day of ministry. The quiet place is where he brought his disciples after their first mission trip. The quiet place is where Jesus would go early in the morning while it was still dark. dark. Jesus sought silence. He sought solitude. He sought quiet because he knew that hurry and busyness and distraction was a danger to his soul and therefore a danger to the mission of God that he was sent to accomplish. He had to go to the quiet place to meet with his father. And he knew he couldn't do that in the hustle and bustle of life. C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia, also a great Christian thinker. He wrote this satirical book called The Screwtape Letters, which has a senior demon writing letters of advice to a young demon. And the senior demon calls the world, the kingdom of noise. And he says to the young demon, the goal is to make the whole, un- the whole universe one big noise in the end. Seems almost prophetic. See, Jesus sought wilderness. He sought quiet. He sought external quiet and internal quiet. And we all know there's a difference between those two. He didn't just get quiet He quieted himself. And so you say, you're busy. I get it. I'm busy. With what? With what? Can you flip over your lyric sheet, please? You see this self-evaluation that we have? What is actually choking out your day that is more important than rest and health for your soul? Don't tell me it's kids. I swear I'll smack you. We all have kids, okay? What is actually choking out your day that is more important than rest and health for your soul? Do you want to be a better parent? It's not about being a better butler or chauffeur for your kids. It's about finding rest for your soul. Do you want to be a better spouse? It starts by finding rest for your soul. Do you want to be more filled with joy? It's about finding rest for your soul. Do you want to have more peace in the midst of turmoil? It's about finding rest for your soul. Do you want to be more loving and not start the day threatening your children? It's about finding rest for your soul. We need to bring back the old school quiet time. It means you get up early or you stay up late if that's your thing means you get quiet internally and externally. That means no multitasking, no emptying the dishwasher while you listen to the Bible app. No, it's quiet and stillness. It's reading the word and having enough internal stillness to think about it. Maybe even jot some thoughts down and praying and sticking it to the distractions and fighting for quiet. Your homework, if you choose to accept it, is to do this self-evaluation this week. This self-evaluation is designed 
to help you see what is actually choking out your time. And if you're looking at that and you're like, well, I'm never on my cell phone, so this doesn't apply to me, and then cross out cell phone or write boat or surfing or paddle boarding or fishing or tinkering in my garage or whatever it is. You cross out the thing that you know I don't struggle with that and you write what you actually struggle with, right? I'm obsessed with exercising. How many times a day do you think about exercising? Those are the things that we actually want to process through. We want to identify what is choking out your spiritual development so you don't become like the third soil that receives the word of God but never grows up, okay? And so take some time this week to self-evaluate so that you can actually see what you need to do in the coming weeks. Let's take our lives back from the hectic pace of life and let's find rest for our souls. Let me pray. Father God, we are a busy people, and I am the guiltiest one here. Lord, we know that we're distracted with many things, and we live in a culture that tells us that's normal. And frankly, we don't want to not know what's going on because we don't have our phones or, or not be able to take a picture because we would forgot our phone in the car or whatever it might be, Lord, but we need to learn how to actually be focused the way you want us to be focused so that we don't squander our years, squander our moments, and squander our lives. So, Lord, teach us your ways. So many times in the scriptures you tell us to be still, to be calm, you're pictured as still water, green pasture, a refuge, a cave. Lord, teach us to enjoy the quiet and not be afraid of it. Help us to stop worshiping our idols and instead to find the greater portion sitting at your feet. In your name we pray, amen.